For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Our God is high and exalted. He lives forever. His name is holy. He dwells on a high and holy place. And He dwells with the lowly and contrite of heart in order to revive us. It's Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, one of my favorite verses. And I think we've been reminded of that in a variety of ways so far today. And hopefully we'll keep seeing that in the Word of God Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We will be starting this new chapter today, spending a couple of weeks here, and then moving along to chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 5, looking to cover the first seven verses today. It's a very complicated thing. It's a... um, It's something we don't have all the details we would like. It's a personal issue that was taking place in Corinth, and it has lots of implications for us today. And so let's let's enjoy this together as we study and seek to understand what the Lord has for us. I'll read the first uh, seven verses and then open with a word of prayer. Paul writes to this church in Corinth, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. You have equipped us through the revelation of yourself. You've equipped us for this life. You've equipped us for the church. And we ask that today as we look into your word that you would bless our study, that you would open our minds, that you would give us insight, and you would assure our hearts in the truth. Lord, I thank you that you've remained faithful to us, though all we like sheep have gone astray and we've wandered 
Lord, you've remained the same. And you've been faithful to the salvation that you've worked in us. You've been faithful to this redemption that you've awarded us. And that you don't let us go, but you hold on to us until the end. Thank you. Lord, I ask that today, though I am a sinner, both by nature and by choice, that I would be anointed by your Spirit to preach your word rightly, that I wouldn't get in the way, but that your word would be so clear to your people, that we would all grow in our knowledge and understanding, and that we would all be conformed to the image of Christ, our Savior. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, like I mentioned, we're going over chapter 5 in two parts, this week and next week, and it's an overview of what some might call church discipline. It's an overview of that doctrine as we are seeing 1 Corinthians 5 as a case study for us, seeking not only to understand what was going on in the church from the sinner's perspective, but what was going on from a church leadership perspective. This week, I'm looking to lay a foundation of principles. I'm looking to give an overview of these things. And then next week, that's the sermon you'll really want to hear. Next week, we'll get into the details of 1 Corinthians 5. Today, we're just going to touch on things rather lightly. But let's start by describing the situation as found in verse 1. The situation of what was going on in Corinth. If you have your notes, please follow along. I'm going to throw a lot at you today. You'll want to write things down. Um, But what was going on in Corinth was that a man in that church had formed a romance with his stepmother. You can see in verse 1 where Paul says it's been reported. This means Paul has heard through the grapevine. It's the word has gotten out that there is a man among them who has his father's wife. Now this could, there's a a percentage chance, there's a possibility that this could be in reference to the man's biological mother, though I don't think that's the case. The majority of commentators don't think that's the case. Paul said father's wife. He didn't say your mother or his mother. And so it appears as though this was his stepmother. It was the wife of his father, Whether that means the father was divorced and remarried, whether that means the father was a polygamist, we don't know. We just know that a man had his father's wife. And even though that it likely wasn't his biological mother, this was still considered incest. This was still considered an incestuous relationship that that man was taking part in. And uh, we might consider that and hear the details of that, and our first response is, ew. Our first response is, ooh, <laughs> maybe not even the word ooh, just a noise. Uh, how could that be? That is so gross. Yes, that is gross. But I do want to let you in on something that our culture is headed this way. Something that seems so grossly perverted, something that seems so immoral, so obviously wrong to hopefully all of us here this morning is something that our culture cannot consistently prohibit. And so don't be surprised if this chapter becomes more and more relevant in days ahead, not just because of the instructions that it gives us as the church, but for the example that it gives of a man having his father's wife. It was something that was taking place in Corinth in that church, and I believe it's something that could be happening in our own backyards before too long. So let's think through this. Let's 
see how many more details we can conjure up about this situation. We don't have details about how the relationship began. It's just simply stated a man has his father's wife. But what we can infer is that it was, in fact, a relationship. He's using the word has there. A man possesses his father's wife. This isn't a fling. This is perhaps a living situation. It's likely a living situation. They are living together as husband and wife. He has her, present tense, continually. The man is spoken of as one being in the church. He hasn't yet been removed from the church. Paul is rebuking the leaders, meaning that he is a believer. He's a part of the fellowship there. However, the wife, the father's wife, who is in this man's possession, she is not mentioned as being a church member. So it's likely, again, we don't know with certainty, but it's likely that the father's wife is an unbeliever. So adding to the whole situation is that they are spiritually unequally yoked, most likely. A man who is a believer taking his father's unbelieving wife. It's a very tangled mess, isn't it? And the uh, majority of commentators also believe that this man was influential in the church. We don't know his name. We don't know his background. But the fact that the leaders were so hesitant to take care of this issue perhaps means that this man had influence and that removing him from their worldly perspective, removing him from the church would be damaging because he was influential in the church, influential in the culture. But even if he wasn't an influential man, we also can know from verse 1 that it was common knowledge that this was happening. Notice that uh, Paul doesn't say, you have asked me about what to do with this man. He doesn't say that. He says, it is reported among you. And if you can remember all the way back in chapter 1, Paul makes reference to Chloe's people. He says that Chloe's people have reported to him that there are quarrels among the Corinthians. So there's a lot of rumors getting out that are true. It's actually news reports getting out uh, about these people. And one of the things is that there's a man who is still in that church who has not been disciplined, who has his father's wife, who is living with someone who is not his wife. In fact, that woman is his father's wife. The Corinthians were responding with arrogance in this situation. They were being proud about this situation. They were being puffed up about it instead of mourning. They were not regarding biblical morality or even nature itself, but they were arrogant. They were puffed up about it. What a disaster. Well, as with all things in life, we should seek to understand this situation theologically also. As we gather details and understand situations and uh, get the, the bare facts of the matter, we should want to interpret those things through our the theological lens, a scriptural lens, considering the whole of the Bible. And so we should do that with this before we get into other matters. Uh, as we consider the action itself, the incestuous action of a man taking his father's life, there is an aspect of nature speaking against this, right? You don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand that such a thing is wrong. Nature itself testifies that this is not the way it is to be. Yet, God's law also speaks to this. We covered this verse in our series in Deuteronomy uh, less than a year ago. But it's Deuteronomy 22, verse 30. It says in the law, the last verse of 
Deuteronomy 22, a man shall not take his father's wife. And it gives a purpose so that he will not uncover his father's skirt. It's an offense against his father to take his father's wife. This, of course, is a moral principle that a man should not do this, and morality doesn't change. God's truth about how we are to live morally doesn't change. So this man in Corinth was sinning. It's clear from nature. It's clear from the law. What he was doing was, in fact, a sin. And it was a sin on more than one level. It was a sin against his father, breaking one of the Ten Commandments. He wasn't honoring his father by taking his father's wife. It was a sin in the fact that it was adulterous. It wasn't just incestuous, it was adulterous. It was an affair that was ongoing. It was theft. He was stealing from his father, taking his father's wife. His father possessed this woman, and now he possessed this woman. The action itself was very sinful. Paul uses the verbiage in verse 1. Look with me in our text today, verse 1. He expresses how gross this sin is by saying that this immorality of this type does not exist even among the Gentiles. And that's a major statement. He's writing to Corinthians. He's writing to those living in the Roman Empire, and in the Roman Empire it was very common for all types of sexual immorality to take place. That was virtuous to many, many of those living in the Roman Empire. And especially in Corinth, where if you remember that phrase, Corinthian girl, that's what people in the Roman Empire, no matter where they lived, they could refer to a Corinthian girl and everybody would know that meant a prostitute. Corinth was especially known for depraved sexual acts. And Paul says to the Corinthians, what this man is doing isn't even known among the Gentiles. It is especially gross immorality that was worthy of their mourning. It was worthy of them taking action against it. But instead, the sin was met with boasting and complacency. Can you imagine? Such an obvious, blatant, gross sin in the church met with boasting that the leaders would find pride in it that such a man attended there. That they were perhaps taking advantage of grace, using grace as a weapon, as a license for sin, and boasting that the moral law didn't apply to them. They were prideful in this man's gross sin, and they were complacent about dealing with it. That's considering the action itself theologically. We also need to consider the context theologically. Because sin in the church, sin of this type in the church, should not be considered in a vacuum. It shouldn't be considered as a one-off event disconnected from everything else. But instead, we should recognize, as the Word presents to us, that a sin like this in the church, this blatantly wrong, this ongoing, this prideful, this affects all of us. We're all affected by it. We're all connected in God's family. And if we refuse to address it as a church, we are all then complicit in the sin. So not only are we all passively affected by it, but if we refuse to deal with it, we're all actively complicit in it. May it never be. Romans chapter 1 
Paul lays out his case that the Gentiles are sinners, that the Gentiles have all received enough revelation to know that God exists, and yet they rebel. He explains how they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They replace the truth with a lie. They worship and serve the creation rather than the Creator. And he goes on at the end of the chapter and he lists all the types of things that they now do as they rebel against God in unrighteousness. But look at what he says, and it'll be up on the screen. In Romans 1.32, he says that there are those who know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, but not only do they do those same things, those same sins as the Gentiles, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And this is what the Corinthians had become. Although knowing the ordinance of God that those who do such things are worthy of death, they not only did the same things, they were not only immoral themselves, they were giving approval, hearty approval to those who practice them. And that's become quite virtuous in our day, hasn't it? Our culture is pressuring Christians especially more and more. Give approval, give affirmation, support, be tolerant. And our response is, sin is worthy of death. It's a harsh statement, but we have to reckon with this if we're going to get the gospel. It's a difficult statement to swallow. You might be looking a family member in the eye. You might be looking a loved one in the eye. You might be having a heartfelt conversation and saying, what you are doing is worthy of death, but you have to say it. You can't skip over it. It has to be clear. Because if there is no bad news, there is no good news. If we can affirm sin, if we can give a thumbs up to sin, a hearty approval to sin, then why did Jesus die? He wasn't taking the wrath of God, if that's the case. But if we understand rightly the place of sin, that it is rebellion against our Creator, that it is worthy of punishment by death, then the cross becomes a beautiful solution to our problem. That Jesus, the Son of God, in our place, took on the wrath of God, that our sin and our guilt could be removed, cast as far as the east is from the west. That should be our response to sin in the church and outside of the church. We shouldn't give hearty approval to sin ever, ever. And so as Paul is writing this letter, he's urging them to consider this sin rightly and to consider it in the context of the local church. Because as members of this local body, you and I, each one of us, has a responsibility to encourage one another, to build one another up, and to confront one another when someone is in sin, when someone continues to rebel against God. We have that responsibility. Look how Paul puts their mind on the church. Look down at verse 4. He references when you are assembled, and that's a plural you, when you all are assembled, when you all come together. He's putting their mind on the assembly. In verse 5, he's talking about when I'm with you in spirit as you're assembled, we're going to do this together. We're going to deliver such a one to Satan. Look at verse 6. He makes reference to a whole lump of dough. The church is the whole lump. 
The church together creates this lump of dough, and we are to remove the leaven. Verse 7, this is in the plural. It's in the active. You all together clean out the leaven that you might be a new lump of dough. It's what we do together in the context of the local church out of love for God and out of love for one another. This is our calling. This is our command. is to love God and to love one another more than we love the things that God hates. And I've titled today's sermon, instead of church discipline, and I, I thought about titling it church discipline, but you guys don't like that, that term. So I titled it church purity. Church purity. Because this is key. This is our goal as a church, isn't it? To be pure. To be holy. To be submissive to God as He's working in us and growing us and causing us to be more and more like His Son. That is our collective goal. And I want to give you a few verses here from Paul and from Peter and from John to illustrate this and to make this clear. In Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, look at what Paul says to this church about what they are supposed to do. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's our aim as a church. Together, that's what we're doing. Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Same phrase. To please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What is our aim? To walk worthy, to bear fruit, to please God, to increase in our knowledge of God. From Peter. This is 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in all knowledge. No, in ignorance. Verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Our collective aim is holiness as obedient children, holiness for God. And finally, 1 John, 1 John 3, echoing the same idea. What is our aim? Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And here's the action. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. As we together keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing that we will be like Him, we will be with Him, and we see His purity, we behold His purity, it is our duty collectively then to purify ourselves and to encourage one another to be pure. This is our group responsibility that each and every one of us as members of God's household would seek to be pure. And the oversight of this is a particular stewardship of the overseers. 
The shepherds in the church, the leaders in the church, have been given a particular responsibility to oversee these things. A couple of more verses, again, they'll be on the screen. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 15 and 16. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. That responsibility falls primarily on the shoulders of the shepherds who are to keep watch over these things. They are to see to it that no immoral person come up and divide the church and lead people astray, as was happening in Corinth. They had revoked their responsibility as leaders. Another one from Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The oversight of the purity of the church is a particular stewardship of the under-shepherds seeking to serve the chief shepherd, Jesus. It's a group responsibility, but there's a particular stewardship given to leaders. And Paul certainly has those leaders in mind in 1 Corinthians 5 as he's writing to them. As we're thinking through this theologically still, considering the sin itself, considering the context of the local church, and now considering the response, the response of the leaders. They were boasting. They were not shepherding the souls of the people as they had been called to do. But they were boasting in the sin of the people. You see how perverted and twisted and backwards this is? They're the ones who are to make sure no root springs up that could cause this type of thing. That was their duty. They were to watch out for that. Don't get distracted by the pretty pictures. Focus on the work. They were supposed to be focused on the sin in the church and caring primarily about the purity of the church. But instead, they cared more apparently about appearances and about their own power and they forfeited this shepherding. They weren't living in light of the reality that they'll have to give an account, but instead they were living in just a very temporary reality. They were living in the moment and thinking about the moment, focused on themselves first instead of the souls of the people and what was best for God's people. They cared more about themselves and they were proud of it. This is what can be called the sin of sin tolerance. The Corinthian leaders were sinning by tolerating sin. And again, today it's a virtue by most standards, but God's Word speaks differently. Robert Gramacki wrote this. I loved this quote. Paul was aghast, but the church was apathetic. They had swelled heads instead of broken hearts. They had swelled heads instead of broken hearts. They were proud of their toleration. They had compromised. The church there, its leadership, had totally, absolutely compromised. Many churches have compromised on sin, and many churches are going to compromise on sin in the future. We are going to see it more and more. As 
the secular agenda, as the godless agenda rages on, and as all these different theories of humanity pervade schools and churches, there will be more and more churches apostatizing, giving up on godliness, giving up on the Word of God, compromising on the very basic principles of our faith. Judgment of sin and discipline of unrepentant church members is already rare enough, and it's going to get rarer and rarer. It's going to become extinct in many areas. The Corinthians had compromised, and so many others will too. Al Mohler has written, Christians and the church must hold fast to revelation and never step off the rock of God's perfect word. When faced with unprecedented challenges, when secularization makes its harrowing demands, when all chaos breaks loose and society plummets down a spiral of destruction, the church must stand ready with the Bible, the perfect, never-failing, infallible revelation from God. What else will be our authority? What else will we have? What else do we have? You remember the end of chapter 4 from last week? Look at the very last verse of chapter 4. Paul presented to them these two options. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I discussed how this was in reference to their attitude. Were the Corinthians going to be soft and tender toward their sin, being ready to repent? Were they going to be humble? Or were they going to require the rod? Of course, this didn't mean a physical beating, but our rod of correction is what? The Word of God. Our rod of correction, our rule of faith, our standard, our measurement for all things is Holy Scripture. What else do we have? What else will we have as we see so many people turning away and embracing sinful thoughts and sinful desires? All we have is the Word of God, and it begins in our churches. It begins in our homes. The implementation of this reality teaching it to our children, godly church leaders instructing it to God's people. This is where it must begin. And we have to say emphatically, in the face of all the things going on in our world today, all the things taking place in our nation today, we have to say emphatically that Christians should never find a reason for boasting in sin. Christians should never find sin as basis for arrogance or pride or boasting. We have to constantly be remembering and be communicating to the world around us that sin is worthy of death, and it must be addressed. I know I've just given you a couple of quotes, but let me give you one more. My, my favorite sentence that I read all week from Mark Dever, we want to love God so much that we hate the sin that He hates in ourselves and in others, which will include a willingness to confront others in hatred of sin and in love for God and them. Let me say it again. We want to love God so much that we hate the sin that He hates in ourselves and in others, which will include a willingness to confront others in hatred of sin and in love for God and them. 
when we read about the Corinthian leaders boasting and the church not taking care of the sin, we realize they didn't love the people. Because what is it when you confront somebody about sin? It's love. It's love. Hatred is to turn a blind eye. Hatred is to affirm them in their actions of death. But love is to confront. You know, many people associate church discipline with punishment. And the words discipline and punishment aren't even synonyms. I had someone say this to me a number of years ago, and I, it took me a while to get it. I had to have children of my own and have them grow up a little bit for me to start grasping this. Discipline and punishment are two very different things. And I've changed my verbiage in my home. We don't punish our children, we discipline our children. When you think of our salvation, Jesus was punished on our behalf so that God would then discipline us as children. God doesn't punish His children. All of His punishment was poured out on Jesus that we might become children of God and therefore receive the loving correction, the discipline of God. So our message to the world is, there is a punishment coming for you if you are not in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, you are, you are hidden under the shield of His atonement. You are hidden under the shield of His propitiation, the New Testament word, that He has, in fact, satisfied the Father's wrath. He can, in fact, remove all your guilt, that you would be left innocent. But if you're not in Christ, you will be punished. Yet for those in the church, for all of us who are in Christ, we don't look forward to any punishment. There is no punishment for us. But is there discipline? <laughs> you better believe it. And the testimony of Scripture is that the ones who receive discipline are the ones that loves. He whom he loves, he disciplines. A loving father disciplines his children. And that's what God does to His people, to Christians. So when we think of church discipline, don't associate it in your mind with punishment. Associate it in your mind with love. That's the witness of the Bible. Discipline is the result of love. It's the product of love. It's not punishment. And the church in Corinth was failing to love this one who had his father's wife. They were failing to love him by not disciplining him. They were not going through discipline as they should. And the appropriate course of action in this case, look at the passage today, verse 2, the appropriate course of action was that he would be removed from their midst. This is not to take away his salvation. The church has no authority to do that. You don't maintain your salvation by being in, in person with a church body. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't punishment, but it was discipline that he would be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but that his spirit might be saved. It's harsh discipline, but it's discipline in love. They should have removed him from their midst, but they were unwilling because they didn't love him. So I want to start to answer the question in the rest of my message today and then pick this up next week. 
How exactly do you go about removing a person? (laughs) How exactly does this play out? He says, remove that person from your midst. Well, what does that look like? I want us to start to get into that today, but next week will be needed. Uh, Again, we're not considering sins in the church to be uh, disconnected from everything else. These things don't happen in a vacuum, but it all happens in a context, and that's important to keep in mind. And I want to give you some fundamental points uh, about sin issues and addressing sin issues today. The most basic and fundamental point as we consider the responsibility of the sinner, the responsibility of the offender in the church, the most basic point is that each sinner is responsible for his own sin. What's the offender's basic responsibility? To own up to his sin. Now, all of us are sinners. All of us are offenders in a variety of ways. And so we need to take this to heart, first of all, that we are to own up to our own sin. It's the first step in dealing with these things humbly. No one else can be blamed for your sin, not even the devil. You can't say, the devil made me do it. You can't take Freud's approach and say, Daddy made me do it or Mommy made me do it. Everyone is responsible for his own sin. In the day of judgment, God will not accept as an answer, the devil made me do it. Okay? You are responsible for your own sin. Now, the church's responsibility, a little bit broader than that, we are all responsible for how we respond to sin in the local church. We are all responsible for how we respond to sin in the local church. Not one of us should be found tolerating sin such as this, the sin in Corinth of a man having his father's wife. But we should all react to sin appropriately, meaning we hate it because God hates it, and we address the things that we should address out of love. So the church's responsibility at a basic level, is to respond rightly to sin in the church. And again, this is for all people, but particularly for the shepherds. You think about the commands given to elders and pastors in the church. Think of those, those different phrases. Be alert. Be vigilant. Watch. Keep watch. That is the responsibility of the leader. The leaders of the church are to keep watch for things such as this. And to see how this plays out in the local church, you can turn with me to Matthew 18. There are two main passages about church discipline in the Bible, in the New Testament. One is 1 Corinthians 5, which, of course, we are in, and the other is Matthew 18. These are the main passages for considering what church discipline should look like. 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. And please join me at verse 15 of Matthew 18. And we'll read Matthew 18, 15 to 18. These are the foundational principles for leading a person to repentance. And remember, keep in mind, as we read this, as we discuss this, that's the goal of church discipline is leading to repentance. It's not punishment, remember. And it's not shame. It's not stoking bitterness. It's not getting revenge. It's all about repentance. Repentance. Starting at verse 15. 
If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does do more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So as we think through what Jesus taught us here, let's consider each step. The first step found in verse 15 is if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Your text might say if your brother sins against you, and we are not sure how original that phrase against you is to the book of Matthew. But either way, if this is a personal sin or a sin that you have observed and you are going to confront, these are principles you are to follow. Either way. And Jesus says in that first step, you are to have a confidential meeting with such a person. There's an offender. He's your brother. This is in the context of the family of God. You see an offender or you are offended by somebody have a confidential meeting. Jesus made sure to say, in private, have that meeting in private, and talk to that person about that sin, confront that person about the sin. That's a very important first step that many people skip. We have all skipped it at one point or another in our lives. We've run, run off and told somebody else. We've asked for, you know, the teacher to help us, whatever it may be. But the first step is always, you go. If it's truly an offense, and if you really are brothers or sisters or whatever it may be in the faith, go and, and talk to that person out of love. And this is a, a, an aspect of church discipline. It's not just church discipline when you tell it to the church. Each of these steps leading to that is church discipline because you are members of the same church confronting someone about sin. Now, the second step only occurs if that person refuses to repent of sin. If that person refuses to change his or her disposition toward the sin, the next step is to widen that circle of confidentiality, widen the circle and bring in witnesses, two or three witnesses. That's the basis found in the Old Testament. It's the basis Jesus uses here as he gives us instructions. The next step is to grab two or three people, bring them in, not just for witnessing the conversation, but for contributing to the conversation. Those two or three are to help that person communicate to the offender what has taken place. And I know this is true because look at verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, that means they were speaking, they were contributing. And in that case, if the sinner continues to refuse to listen, the circle is widened as wide as it can go to the entire local church. To have that person be confronted by the church at large. Now, I say this is widened to as wide as it can go because every local church is responsible only for its own affairs. You don't bring in another church. There is no conglomeration of churches. There is no archbishop. There's no hierarchy, no structure where you can call down someone to come in and deal with these sins. But the church is to deal with the church. The local church specifically, is to deal with itself specifically. And can you imagine 
how cringy this is. Perhaps some of you have been a part of a meeting like this. How devastating it is. Once you get past the feelings of awkwardness, then you're just sad. And in some cases, angry. The third step is to tell it to the church. And then again in verse 17, if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, meaning the church collectively is saying, repent, please turn from this. You're damaging yourself. You're ruining the witness of Christ. Please stop. If the offender continues in this sin, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And we'll talk through that more next week. But the basis is, if repentance is still rejected, the final step is to consider that person a non-Christian. Now, again, thinking back to 1 Corinthians 5 and the situation at the church in Corinth, uh, the church leadership should have been involved by this point. Paul is at that final step. Paul is saying he should be removed from the church. (laughs) This sin This gross immorality that is gross even among the Romans and the Gentiles, the the Greeks themselves, this person is to be removed. And I should say, just as a little insight here for a moment, that the way it normally plays out, again, we don't know all the details in Corinth, but the way it normally plays out in a church is the church leadership comes in on the second step. That's typically how how it plays out. Now, Again, that first step is you go speak to that person one-on-one privately. And I have had people come to me saying, so-and-so said this, and I was offended, something to that nature. And my response has been and will always be, just so you know, why are you talking to me? Go talk to so-and-so. It doesn't matter if someone's a deacon, an elder, a pastor, doesn't matter. The first step is always you go talk to that person in private, one-on-one. But after that, if the conversation is not going the way it should, typically that's when people want church leadership to come in as the witnesses, the two or three witnesses. And we do practice church discipline here. It's a biblical principle. We can't reject it. It's our calling as Christians in the church. It's something we do. And remember, it's something we do out of obligation for God and out of love for people. It's unloving, it's hatred to allow sin to fester, and it's love to confront. It's not a form of punishment. In my time here, I've been here almost seven years now, and it could be said that sin was formally addressed in one way or another in three different cases that I've been a part of here in those almost seven years. And it is an awkward thing. It's a sad thing. Each of those cases has ended poorly. So often it does. But that is not the goal. The goal is restoration. It's also not the goal to go out headhunting every sin. There have been a lot more sins than three in seven years. (laughs) There have been a lot more issues We're not looking to make a big deal out of everything. But there are times in which repentance is refused and the flames grow larger and larger and it has to be addressed on a more formal basis. And it has to be done in love. 
another quote from Mark Dever. He says, We need to hold each other accountable because all of us will have times when our flesh wants to go in a way different than what God has revealed in Scripture. And part of the way we love each other is by being honest and establishing relationship, relationships with each other and speaking in love to each other. That's a tremendous privilege and a great responsibility. If we want to see our churches healthy, we must actively care for each other, even to the point of confronting. If we want to see our churches healthy, we must actively care for each other, even to the point of confronting. It's a love issue, and we are all involved. If we love each other and care about the health and well-being of the church, we will be so involved in each other's lives that we can point things out. And if we're humble, we'll say, thank you for showing me that. Thank you for confronting me on that. This is what the wise man of Proverbs does. He's confronted with his sin, and he changes. What does the fool do? The fool is confronted with his sin and then blames someone else, like Adam. Let's be humble. Let's be wise. Let's love each other enough, care about each other enough that we can confront one another. And leaders in particular must be ready and willing to address these things. As a case of sin in the church advances, advances through the stages of Matthew 18, one-on-one, two or three, telling it to the local church, I have to tell you this too. The local church is responsible to submit to their local leaders. And this is touchy for some people. This is a touchy subject. But the local church is responsible to submit to their local shepherds throughout the process of church discipline. And when you think about it, if the plurality of elders in a local church loves you and you trust them, there's nothing to fear. Just like loving parents, there's nothing to fear. But sadly, so many people don't trust pastors. It could be their past experiences. They were part of bad churches. They got burned. It could be for a variety of reasons. Sadly, many people don't start with a position of trust with the leaders of the local church. But you can trust shepherds who love you, love you enough to talk about your sin, to help you. Not coming to you as sinless people, but coming to you as sinners themselves and saying, let's do this together. Let's work on this together. Let's grow together. Because good shepherds don't tolerate sin. That's not love. Tolerating sin is not love. It's a sin itself. I know of a man right now in a church far, far away from here. <laughs> Trust me, okay? Not just saying it. A man far, far away from here who is in a church. He's a believer, and he's in a conflict with another believer in that church. These two men have been in conflict now to the point of years. It's been over two years. And they've met one-on-one, -on -one, and it's just not working out, not advancing. It's not moving along. And the one man says, well, let's bring others in. Let's bring the pastors of the church in to this conversation. 
And this man's response is, that feels too much like church discipline, and I won't submit to that. That's a very real attitude that many people have. And you don't need to have that attitude if you have shepherds who love you and care for you and want the best for you and want holiness and set as the goal, the honor of God, the name of God, the reputation of God. Surely the man in Corinth who had his father's wife had his justifications. Nobody goes on in unrepentant sin without their justifications. There are all kinds of ways to spin it. And surely the leaders in Corinth had their fears about confronting him and going through the appropriate steps. But that's all irrelevant in light of what is right. The question is not, does he have good reasons for his sin? The question is not, Do we have enough courage to do what we need to do? The question is, what is right? That should be all of our motivation. And I know we're running late, but I have a little bit more. (laughs) I have to tell you too, in this whole church discipline, church purity conversation, there's something that happens in the New Testament that sadly we don't see a lot in America today, in that the people who were being confronted in their sin, it seems, had a great desire to be in the fellowship. They desired, they longed to be a part of the church, to be considered members of the church, members in good standing. It was something that they, not in pride, perhaps in some cases in pride, but out of love for God, they wanted to be a part of the church and be in good standing. And that's essential to the whole process. Because as we talk about this man in Corinth who was to be removed, that removal was supposed to hurt. When Jesus says, treat them like a tax collector or Gentile, that was supposed to hurt for them. They were supposed to feel it deep down as a form of discipline. Discipline hurts. But again, sadly, many people today don't have that longing for the fellowship. Often it's the same people who don't trust their local shepherds. They don't long for that Christian fellowship. And that makes the whole process even more complicated. But if you've come to know the Lord through the gospel, you should have that longing to be in fellowship. And it should hurt when you can't be in fellowship for whatever reason it may be. So as we consider these things, Let's remember our aim, the title of the sermon, church purity. That's our aim, for God's glory, not for our glory, not to make ourselves look good, but to consider the reputation of God and to honor His name. The Corinthians, they were boasting when they should have been mourning. They were arrogant when they should have been busy cleansing. Let that not be us. We should care about purity for God's sake more than that. We should love each other more than that. And I mentioned at the end of last week's sermon, again, if we're tender toward our sin, humble, open, soft toward what God might be pointing out in our lives, we can have the assurance of God's blessing in all this. If we can just rest on Him alone, and be open to whatever anybody might be confronting us about. And if we are 
soft and tender toward sin in the church that's not your own, maybe someone else's sin that you've seen and you feel the responsibility of doing something about it, if you go about it humbly, gently, remember Jesus said his heart is lowly and gentle. If we take the heart of Jesus with us, meek, lowly, gentle, God will bless. God will use you. God will work through you. And he'll be honored through you, which is the most important. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word and for your help as we deal with difficult passages, difficult situations, difficult experiences. Have us to have a humble attitude to seek first your kingdom and to care about what is right for your sake. As we continue this conversation today and through the week and next Sunday, Have us to have our focus on you for your glory, that we wouldn't seek our own, but that we would seek after holiness in the church, because that's our collective aim, our collective responsibility, to honor you by walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.